T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome to the show, folks. Yes, I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So, which has multiple layers of meaning. And we are on the American Family Radio Network exclusively. I began doing the show back in September. I love it. I hope you enjoy being a listener as much as I enjoy being your host. Did you know that Hillary Clinton began her public life as an advocate for children's liberation. The liberation, in other words, of children from the oppressive tyranny of adult authority. Did you know that she and her buddy, Marion Wright Edelman, had a lot of input into the wording of what is called the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, which most European countries have signed, and which is effectively an international treaty that obligates signatory states to conform their internal laws to the articles of the convention. And did you know that this United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child states, among other things, that children should have the right to what is termed freedom of association. In other words, if your 13-year-old wants to spend time with the 40-year-old guy down the street who just doesn't act quite right, you should have nothing to say about it. The U.N. Convention also says that children should have unfettered access to the media. That's right. It says children should have access to the media without boundaries. That's the exact wording. So, if you're aware that your 16-year-old is surfing porn sites on the Internet, you should have no say in the matter. And did you know that the convention, which is as I said, a treaty that obligates signatory states to conform their laws to the articles of the convention extends to children freedom of expression. Did you know this about Miss Hillary Clinton? I'll bet you didn't. A recent caller to this show objected to advice I dispensed concerning a teenage girl who was exhibiting a number of behaviors that uh, psychologists term narcissistic and sociopathic. 
The girl was being extremely deceitful, rebellious, she was lying, and she was abusing animals, specifically horses that were in her care. The caller, a young lady in her 20s, pointed out that the girl's behavior could be due to hormones and other biological factors. These stresses, my caller claimed, predispose tantrums, rebelliousness, disrespect, and a general lack of emotional control. No, they do not. Let me say that again. No, they do not. Teenage girls may have some difficulty adjusting to the onset of puberty, and some may have more difficulty than others. Puberty may be a difficult time, very difficult for some teenage girls, but there is nothing about puberty, specifically the onset of menstruation, however troublesome, however inconvenient, however much of a hassle that entitles a teenage girl to be rebellious disrespectful, and an emotional tyrant, much less devious and abusive to animals. Furthermore, there's nothing about puberty that explains the level of drama that's currently associated with female adolescence. The norm may involve occasional moodiness, anxiety, and emotional outbursts, the operative word being occasional, But believing and acting as if one is playing the lead role in a perpetual soap opera has nothing to do with puberty. How do I know this? Well, I know it because I grew up with girls who were not teenage drama queens. In fact, up until recently, that was the norm. The young teenage girl was not a drama queen. She did not act as if one's life was only significant to the degree that it was infused with crisis, plots, conspiracies, and other elements of melodrama. Once upon a not-so-long-ago time, the typical teenage girl was preparing herself for responsible adulthood. She regarded the lingering immaturity of boys— who in fact do mature at a slower rate than girls, with disapproval bordering on disdain. Even today, there are plenty of teenage girls in America who fit that traditional description. Are they biologically abnormal? They may be in the minority in the USA these days, but they are definitely not in the minority when judged against broader norms. According to reliable reports that I have received from people all over the world, girls in other countries, especially what we call underdeveloped countries, do not seem captive to their emotions. My theory is that in this regard, as in numerous other regards, America is simply reaping what was sown in the late 60s and early 70s. This is when mental health professionals in chorus announced that children had a right to express their feelings freely. Supposedly, this allowance was essential to the liberation of the child from the fetters of authoritarian control at home and at school. It was, in fact, true that pre-1970s children 
had not been allowed to freely express their feelings. Adults were, in fact, training children for responsible citizenship, and the responsible citizen does not express his or her feelings freely. The responsible citizen does not express emotion without regard for context. There are some people who call themselves adults who do exactly that. They are not responsible citizens. I'll repeat myself. The responsible citizen does not express emotion freely and without regard for context. Emotional control is a marker of responsible adulthood. But it was not long before everything traditional yielded to parenting progressivism, the seductive propaganda of new ideas under the sun. There have been many, many victims of the children's liberation movement, but the most aggrieved have been children themselves. This is John Rosemond. If you want more of this politically incorrect stuff, stay tuned or go to my websites at johnrosemond.com, parentguru.com. You can call us at 404-419-6499. Or if you're the shy sort, you can email us at radio at rosemond.com. If you would rather tweet, it's at John K. Rosemond. Back with your calls after this. Welcome back to the show. It's called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman. Our number is 404-419-6499. If you'd like to join us with a question or a comment, we welcome those. And we do have a caller on the line. She is Barbara from Tennessee. Barbara, how can I help you? Hi, Dr. Roseman. I'm calling because I would like your thoughts and considerations about a certain matter, and um, here's the context. Over the last 14 years, uh, I've been quite busy. I've completed an advanced degree, and I've worked and navigated the parenting of three children who all happen to be the same age, which is now 17, and um, the special concerns that are associated with a child who has a disability. I realize this question I'm about to ask comes in a unique context to a given situation, but now, in the fifth decade of my life, I'm considering a relationship, and um, there are many thoughts about dating and or remarriage, and I wanted to know what considerations you might share or think should be part of a conversation as I process through that. Well, first of all, uh, you come to the right guy, because my parents divorced when I was two or three. I don't know exactly when. And my mother was a single parent for most of, therefore, the first seven years of my life. She remarried when I was seven. So my stepfather subsequently took my mother and me, the only child of my parents' union, to Chicago, where I spent most of the rest of my childhood, except for a year that I spent with my father 
learning that the grass only looked greener on the other side of the fence if you were, in fact, on the uh, presumably or apparently less green side of the fence. So I spent a year with my dad in high school in Valdosta, Georgia, and then went back for my senior year in high school to live with my mom and stepfather. So I've got a template for answering questions of this sort, Barbara, but you really should not be considering your children's opinions or feelings about the man you're planning on remarrying or the fact of uh, a potential remarriage. Um, This is your life. It's not their life. And they are 17 years old, and they're going to be out of your life fairly soon into lives of their own, one would hope anyway. And here's what parents are doing. They're going to their children and asking them how they feel because this is new psychologically correct parenting. We check in with the children. We make sure it's okay with them. And uh, while the intention behind that is very good, What it does is it gives children the impression that they are the deciders where the potential remarriage is concerned, that if they don't like the guy or they don't like the idea, that you won't uh, get remarried, that their opinions and feelings come first, that they trump the entire situation. And I just don't feel that children should be given regardless of age, that sort of power over a parent's life decisions. Mind you now, one would hope that the children uh, would be, uh, I'll use the word approving, for lack of a better one at the moment, of the fellow in question and the potential of a remarriage. But the bottom line here is what do you want? Is this a relationship that you want? Is this a relationship that you feel has developed to the point where marriage is the next step if the relationship is moving forward? Is this the individual that you want to spend the rest of your life with? And in that context, um, quite frankly, what, uh, what the children think and what they feel is irrelevant And I wouldn't even bring them into the conversation. I would do what my mother did. I'm uh, almost seven years old, and she simply informs me that she is getting married to so-and-so, and and she's getting married uh, on this date, and that we are moving to Chicago. And, you know, she made it very, very clear to me, by the way, that when I was in my stepfather's home, that he was a parent. I mean, she made it very clear to me that I was not to come running to her if I did not like a decision he had made, um, an instruction he had given, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let me tell you, I didn't like that. But looking back, I clearly realize uh, that this was in my best interest. There was no such thing in my life as a step-parent. I mean, there was a legal designation. You know, my friends would ask me, you know, John, he doesn't look like you. Is he your real dad? No, he's not my dad. He's my stepfather. You know, I would certainly refer to him that way using that designation. But in the home, I called him dad. And my father knew this. 
And my father had no problem with it. And I believe that is a healthy thing to do, to give the adult male who is head of the household uh, that honorific dad. And that's the way I think you should uh, do it, Barbara. I think you should simply sit down with the kids and say, kids, I found the man I want to spend the rest of my life with. And uh, I'm sharing my happiness with you. We're getting married at, uh, on such and such a date. And, you know, I have plans for all of you considering uh, uh, w- with respect to the wedding. And, uh, you, you know, just let that be the way it is. And should one of the kids say, well, gosh, mom, I really don't like him. I think you should say, well, you know, you're 17 years old and you have developed likes and dislikes at this point and um, that there will be times when I like people that you don't like and you like people that I don't especially feel an affinity for and loving and beloved child of mine, that's life. That's just the way life is. And, you know, this is an adult decision that I am making and I hope that you will deal with it in an adult fashion. Asking children if they approve of situations like this is the new affective, psychologically correct way of parenting. But I'm, as anyone who has listened to this show for uh, any length of time, should by now know I, I am not a psychologically correct guy, even though I am a psychologist. And I simply believe that uh, going to the children and asking questions of that sort, what do you think about uh, my plans, uh, put children in the catbird seat and um, give them the impression that their feelings, their thoughts, their emotions uh, trump uh, that situation. And A, I don't think children should be given that power. And B, I don't think that this situation is one that uh, requires to any degree at all input from children. I think this is your decision, your life. Is this the guy you want to spend the rest of your life with? Yes, no, end of story. Uh, but Barbara, I've been talking for a while, maybe too long. Um, what do you think about uh, what I have been saying? Because what I've been saying is certainly outside the box. It is. And maybe not even what you expected to hear. So uh, what do you think about it? I actually agree with what you're saying because I do think that just in a hierarchy and in a position of a marriage relationship over children, I think that's a very important dynamic to establish, and those were my thoughts, and my question was really related to that's not what is commonly thought of in in today's world in general, so um, that is something that I can value about what you're saying. I think just in my particular case, um, it's just been us for so many years, for all of their years, and I think that's going to definitely shift and change. So that's probably where some of the question um, is coming from, is noting that change and being aware it's going to be a significant paradigm shift, if you will, for them, um, because that's not something they've had. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, to reiterate, it's, uh, it's a family first. If you look at the Bible, God has one set of instructions for parents. Uh, he does not say, well, here's my instructions for step-parents, and here's my instructions for adoptive parents, and here's my instructions for, quote, 
real, end quote, parents. And here's my set of instructions for uh, parents who are raising gifted children. Um, th- this is the new thing. You know, it's uh, the new thing is that in order to raise a child properly, you have to know what kind of child you have. And all these variables need to be taken into consideration. I say, no, 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 read the Bible. There's one set of instructions. Um, and what that means is that from God's point of view, there's family. There's not step family, adoptive family, this kind of family, that kind of family. It's one family. It's family. And from God's point of view, there's only the word parent. And he gives instructions to parents regardless of their biological relationship to the child. And I can't uh, reiterate it enough. The Bible is sufficient uh, for correction, reproof, and it is sufficient to the raising of children as well. So it's really a, a mixed message, in my opinion, and that mixed message actually divides more than it conquers and brings together. Precisely, Barbara. And this uh, divisiveness has been created by a mental health community that the American parent and American media empowered in the 1960s. And the advice that these people have been giving is the reason why I have a job. Uh, (laughs) It is the reason why parents today are having problems with children that our great-great-grandparents could not have imagined parents ever having. The, the problem is not genes. The problem is not uh, biochemical imbalances and all these other non-scientific, uh, unproven things. The problem is the advice that uh, the mental health community has been giving for the last 50 years. And these are people with capital letters after their names. And the average layperson has no way of knowing that these people are just making stuff up. They're grabbing stuff out of thin air, cutting it out of whole cloth. And the further irony is that when the divisive and bad advice creates problems, the the predictable problems, the people who are in the midst of these problems believe that they can sort these things out by going to people who represent the very profession that caused these problems in the first place. Barbara, I'm sorry, but we've got to go. And uh, glad uh, you called us, and thank you very much for your call. It enabled me to say a lot of uh, what I think are very important things for people to hear. Uh, Folks, the program is Because I Said So. I'm John Roseman, your host. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment or two. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Well, welcome back to the show. Our number is 404-419-6499 if you'd like to join us with a question or a comment. And indeed, we have a caller on the line. Her name is Andrea, and she's from Texas. Andrea, hope you're doing well. How can I help you? Hi, Mr. Rosemond. Um Basically, I was wanting to ask if you had any advice on how to deal with, like, fussing and whining when given something to do. Like, I homeschool my kids, so particularly my nine-year-old has gotten to this point where he just kind of whines and belly aches about having to do the assignment. Now, I make him do it. He has to do it, but I'm trying to find a way to, like, cut out the 
whining and stuff beforehand because it's, you know, it's annoying every time you try to give him something that he doesn't want to do, <clears throat> even if it's a, a chore, he will just kind of, uh, you know, and just kind of whine and carry on and fuss. And I was just wondering um, if you had any tips on how to resolve that and kind of get him where he's maybe not doing it as much or maybe not even at all, you know? Um, well, do I have a tip for you? I'm sitting here as you were talking, and I was thinking to myself, uh, yeah, that might work in this situation. But first thing I want to do, Andrea, is is ask you a very pertinent question, and that is, does your son, despite all the whining, does he do what you have told him to do, whether it's homework, chores, or whatever? Does he, uh, does he in fact, eventually obey? Oh, yes. Yes. He, he has to do what he's told to do. He's not given an option on that. I mean, if he doesn't do what he's told to do, he gets in trouble. But So, yeah, he does complete the task. I don't give in to him. Um, but I, especially, like, if I'm trying to homeschool, I've got three kids at homeschool. To have to pause and have to deal with his whining and belly aching kind of holds up my time. And I'm homeschooling three different grade levels. So when he's whining, he's kind of wasting my time. So I'm just trying to fix this problem. So he, despite the whining, he he does whatever it is you've told him to do. He does the work. He does the chore. But the whining, it's like uh, chalk being dragged uh, screeching across a chalkboard. It's annoying. It's aggravating. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, getting right on with things here, I, I do have, like I said, a solution for you. And I'm pretty confident that this is going to work. I predict that if you do it consistently, what I'm going to tell you to do, it'll work pretty quickly. And that... This whining ought to be pretty much over and done with within two or three weeks. But it may rear its ugly little head two or three times more in the next year. Okay. Uh, don't be disheartened by relapses. Mm-hmm. Uh, when relapses occur, just go straight back to the medicine. Now, the technique, uh, I've built up a lot of suspense here, I realize. <laughs> Uh, The technique that I'm going to describe to you is a technique that I've laid out in a book of mine called The Well-Behaved Child Discipline That Really Works, and it is a technique called Tickets. Actually, I read that book, and I read about the ticket system. Okay, well, that's uh, that's good. We're well along then in the process. You've already read the book. Uh, and what I'm going to do, Andrea, is combine the ticket method that's described in The Well-Behaved Child with another method that's described in The Well-Behaved Child, which is called the doctor. The doctor said. Right. Uh, well, main, my Andrea, main problem is during school. Um, and I mean, chores, he will whine maybe for a brief second, but the whining at school, he will carry it on. Like, he will he'll keep doing it repeatedly for anything that he just doesn't want to have to do. Particularly, he doesn't like having to write his spelling words. So that's really where I need to get a hang on it because, like I said, it holds up my time, you know, where he could be sitting and writing his spelling words and I could be working with another child. Instead, I'm dealing with him sitting there in the corner. I hate writing spelling words. I don't want to write, you know, Andrea, while he's whining, and moaning about uh, whatever school assignment you've given him, 
what are you doing? What exactly are you doing during this time? I'll tell him, you know, you, Hezekiah, you need to stop. There's other people who are trying to do, I'm trying to work with your sister, or I'm trying to work with your brother, you need to stop the carrying on. But I don't want to have to do, why not? You know, and he just kind of starts to argue and kind of whine about it. And I'll get mad at him, and I'll basically tell him, you know what, you need to leave the room. And I'll put him in another room and tell him he needs to do his spelling words by himself in another room. That kind of stops him from disrupting me with working with the other two. And you put him in the other room, and what does he do at that point, Andrea? Well, he'll work on the spelling words, and then, you know, sometimes he'll fiddle, but I'll come back and I check on him. And if he hasn't done it by that point, I mean, I usually spank his bottom. Well, Andrea, okay, you're you're not nipping this in the bud, and as a consequence, you're letting it uh, build up and build That's up and delight. build up. To the point where your reaction is driven by anger, and it is a given that when parents discipline in anger, that uh, their discipline is completely ineffective. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you already realize that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be calling the show. Right. So let's go ahead and and describe this uh, combination of the tickets and the doctor. And Andre, I'm going to be a little more explicit about this uh, for our listening audience than you need for me to be because you've already read the book. Mm-hmm. I want you to first cut out um, three to five ticket size pieces of construction paper. And by that, I mean maybe four inches by an inch and a half, four by two, something like that. And I want you to go ahead and laminate them so that they're nice and sturdy. And I want you to go to an office supply store and get yourself a magnetic clip that uh, you can put these tickets in. And I'm probably going to recommend that you start with three tickets in the clip. Okay. Your son starts with uh, three tickets every day. Okay. And these tickets are in full view Mm -hmm. in the homeschool room that uh, you teach in. Mm -hmm. And then once uh, the tickets are up uh, in the room, you sit down with him and you tell him that you have spoken to a doctor that specializes in uh, the behavior of children. Mm-hmm. You described the problem to him, the whining. Mm-hmm. And uh, after asking you a number of questions, the doctor said that uh, quite obviously the problem is due to the fact that um, your son isn't getting enough sleep, that nine-year-olds don't whine if they're getting enough sleep. Uh, nine-year-olds whine if they're not getting enough sleep. And uh, so what you're doing here, Andrea, is you're, first of all, redefining the problem. The implication isn't that you're a bad kid because you're whining and you're driving mom crazy with this bad behavior. Suddenly, we're redefining the problem. It's a lack of sleep. It's due to a lack of sleep. And the second thing you're doing is you're shifting the authority in the situation to an authority figure whose authority the child already recognizes, a doctor. So we're going to start here, Andrea, where the doctor uh, says that the problem is because of a lack of sleep. And furthermore, the doctor has said that if your son whines more than twice a day, three times a day, in other words, it means that he has not gotten enough sleep the night before, and it is therefore imperative, if 
he whines more than twice in a, in a given day, that he goes to bed early that evening so that he can make up for his lost sleep, he can get the sleep he needs, he can catch up on his sleep, however you want to put that. And so you begin every day with three tickets, and you simply tell him that if he whines, uh, you are simply going to say to him, and you have to do this right away, Andre. You can't warn. You can't say things like, now you're whining. Do you want to lose a ticket? You have to just do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to get right back into this aggravated, angry state that you describe yourself to have been in. Uh, When the whining occurs, you simply immediately say, Hezekiah, you're whining, and uh, that means you're losing a ticket. And you very calmly walk over to the the clip where the tickets are, and you remove one of the three tickets from the clip. The second time in a given day that Hezekiah whines, again, no warnings, no second chances. Uh, You just say to him, Hezekiah, you're whining again. And that means you lose another ticket. Now, the first two of the three tickets that you're going to give him on any given day are his margin of error. In other words, he can whine for free, in effect, twice in any given day. The third time that he whines, as indicated by the third ticket he loses, that means that that evening he has to go to bed No later than 6.30. You've got to put him to bed significantly early so that there is a strong message to him concerning the consequences of whining. Oh, okay. And remember, Andre, it's imperative that you communicate this to him not as punishment. In other words, you're not going to bed because you're a bad kid or doing bad things. Right. Uh, you're going to bed because uh, the doctor has told us that uh, this whining means that you aren't getting enough sleep and you need to be put to bed early so that you can begin getting the sleep that you obviously need. Let me tell you, this combination of the tickets and the doctor have been extremely, extremely uh, effective uh, across a broad range of discipline problems with kids under the age of 10. It doesn't work very well with kids over the age of 10 or who've reached their 10th birthdays because these kids tend to be a little more intellectually savvy than younger kids, and they... Uh, they sort of figure out very quickly that uh, something's uh, not right here and they're less likely, therefore, to cooperate in it. But um, with kids who are younger than 10, uh, I've seen this combination of the tickets and the doctor, as I said, work across a broad range of discipline problems, behavior problems, um, and, and work very, very quickly. The secret to... The recipe is parental composure and parental consistency. All right. Andre, unfortunately, we're right up against a hard break. Uh, it's just the nature of the game. Uh, once again, the book that I referred to in my conversation is The Well-Behaved Child, Discipline That Really Works. You can go to my website, johnroseman.com, for more information. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The title of the show is Because I Said So. We've got a caller on the line, Colleen. Colleen, uh, how are you today? Hope you're well, and how can I help you? I'm fine, John. Thank you for taking my call. I am calling about a situation with my cousin's son, who is six years old. This is an intact family, father, mother, six-year-old boy, four-year-old girl, and family dog. The boy um, is unlike anything I've ever seen. I've seen bratty kids before, but this boy is different. And right now, at the tender age of six, he's, I think he's seriously verbally abusing his mother. He um, beats on his little sister for no reason, and he also abuses the family dog. The mother tries to discipline him, but she has no idea what to do with him, and she just basically whines and asks him, you know, please do this, please do that. It, it helps not at all. The father is, he's like a mannequin sitting in the corner of a, of a store. I mean, he's almost like he's, he's totally impotent. He doesn't discipline the children at all. Um, usually when the children are acting up and the mother's disciplining them, uh, the father walks out of the room. He, he's not even around. And he also works a lot. So he's, he pretty much avoids the kids as much as he can. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what a mess. It is a mess. And, and the reason I called you, um, obviously I, I trust you a lot, but I wanted to see if you think there's anything I can do and just what is your take on this situation and what do you think the father should do, and the parents basically, what, the, what should they do? I really don't think it matters, Colleen, and I hate to tell you this, what I think the father should do. I've dealt with guys like this before. Mm-hmm. I just have yet to find any way of helping these Men understand the necessity, the desperate imperative need for them to get up out of the chair and do what needs to be done in their families, and especially with their young boys who who desperately need masculine dads who discipline. You know, from a psychological point of view, it's like the in this situation, Colleen, the Six-year-old boy is acting out all of this stuff in an attempt to get the father to be an active uh, disciplinarian within the family. It's almost like the six-year-old boy sort of understands unconsciously, intuitively, that he's missing this. And so he's trying to draw his father out and into uh, an active parenting role And the more frustrated the child becomes with this, the more chaotic and the worse the child's behavior becomes. Mm -hmm. The further problem here is the effect of this on the child, the long-term effect. The, The fact of the matter is that there's no reason to believe that there's anything wrong with this six-year-old boy. He's responding logically to a dysfunctional family context. Uh, but the long-term fact of the matter is mm-hmm. that misbehavior of this sort, uh, if it persists over time, is toxic to the child. It's toxic to the child's character. It's toxic to morals. It's toxic to the child's ability to think straight, toxic to his future citizenship, uh, toxic to every aspect of his being. And that is why this is so urgent that a rescue effort be mounted 
by responsible people, if it's at all possible, to rescue this child from the inevitability of the long-term effects of his misbehavior. So to kind of sum up, I mean, I don't believe that there's anything wrong with this child. There's, there's no reason to believe that given this dysfunctional family context. As I said before, all he's doing is responding very logically to this dysfunction. Uh, now, there are psychologists who would disagree with me, but I will say this, and I'm confident of this, that their disagreement would have no scientific basis whatsoever. Their attempt to put forth the the completely unscientific idea that the child is acting out some biochemical imbalance or some blarney like that. When you are six years old and you are abusing an adult female Mm -hmm. and you are abusing a younger female Mm -hmm. and you are abusing the family pet, those are primary markers of developing sociopathy. And Colleen, I, I, I need to be very frank with you. This is not a good situation. And unless this father comes out of the corner and stops being the, uh, the family mannequin, as you so aptly put it, um, I, I give the situation a very low likelihood of retrieval. I mean, let's face it, you know, what's absent here is a father who will grab this child by the scruff of the neck and tell him, you don't talk to women like that. You don't treat women like that. You don't talk to my wife like that. You don't treat my wife like that. I won't tolerate it. Uh, That's what's needed. But having uh, been in this business for over 40 years and having seen this situation uh, the type of situation that you're describing play out over and over and over again, that that is my honest and very, very uh, reluctantly tendered um, assessment. So, Colleen, the question I have for you at this point is, is there anyone in this young child's life who seems to have an effective relationship with him, who is able to discipline him effectively uh, someone the child responds to in a positive way, someone the child behaves for. Is there someone in the family or in his life anywhere that uh, serves that purpose? No. He's, he tries to intimidate everyone he's with, whether it's an adult or a child. I've babysat him a couple of times, and I refuse to babysit him anymore because there's nothing I can do to get him to settle down and just control his behavior. And I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my composure and I'm going to start beating on him. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a reality, Colleen. There is a uh, point that the typical adult reaches here with a child like this where your frustration accumulates to the point where you're likely to become enraged and dump that rage on the child. And I'm certainly not justifying it. I'm certainly not entitling it. I'm just describing a reality here, and uh, that's just the way that it is. So I certainly appreciate that you don't want to be around this kid anymore for fear of what you will do. Uh, And that's uh, certainly um, indicative that you've got a a good amount of self-awareness. Yes. So then my next question becomes, uh, is there anyone in this mother's life who uh, can reach out to her and who can 
gain her trust and, you know, help her as the effective single parent in this situation uh, gain some measure of control over this child? Well, I tried to, and she was quite defensive, and she shut me down real quick. And she avoided me for a long time. And then she started seeing me again. Um, She invited me to her daughter's birthday party last week. I was very surprised. I went, and the six-year-old boy was no better. He was, in fact, worse. Um, But I don't feel like I can open things up with her again, although I do have another idea. Um, My cousin, uh, the the boy's father, uh, was basically raised by his aunt, and his aunt seems to have some trust there in that family. And I think the aunt could talk to either the father or the mother or both. Yeah, Colleen, I mean, that, that sounds like a good, you know, way to go. Uh, and, and let me offer this. Uh, before the aunt talks to this father, uh, maybe she'd want to talk to me. And, and I, I want to tell you, this situation is, is very troubling to me, it's very saddening to me, and I am more than willing to talk to this aunt off air privately mm-hmm. before she goes into this situation and maybe give her some advice. Hopefully, it would be helpful advice. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I would love to have uh, the, the father's aunt talk with you, and I really appreciate you offering that. The other option here is, uh, Colleen, that I train parent coaches and I probably have a parent coach whom I've trained in your part of the country. And if the parents are willing to uh, wake up and uh, get their acts together, I could uh, assign a parent coach to the case, and uh, that person could begin providing them some necessary guidance concerning the discipline of this child. Thank you very much. Uh, absolutely, Colleen. And, and if uh, the family, and especially the aunt that you referred to, wants to go in this direction, then uh, uh, stay on the line and talk to my producer, Rich, and uh, have your aunt call me uh, off the air. And unfortunately, Colleen, we're coming right up on a hard break. So, sweetheart, I'm going to have to uh, take it into the break. But... Uh, My prayers and thoughts are with you and this entire family. Um, Now that uh, we're into the school year, how are your kids doing? For a lot of families, the answer is, well, not as well as we'd hoped. School is a challenge and school systems aren't making it any easier these days, which is why I wrote John Roseman's fail-safe formula for helping your child succeed in school. In a completely revised and updated edition, this book offers practical advice and methods suitable for children as young as age three. In it, I deal with common problems like how much and what kind of help to give with homework, what to do when your child misbehaves in school, and how to deal with academic performance that consistently falls below your child's ability level. More information is available on my website at johnroseman.com. This is Because I Said So, a call-in program all about parenting. Next week, make plans to join us again at the same time, 5 o'clock Central on Saturday afternoon. Why? Because I said so. 
from Creative Genius Productions and the American Family Radio Network.